Welcome to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. My name's Michael Dooney, director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery and host of the show. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Berlin-based artist and photographer Stephanie O'Connor. Earlier this year, she self-published her first photo book, All Stars Stand Close in Summer Air, and shares some of the insights from this process and backstory to the work. We also talk about where she draws inspiration and how the COVID restrictions impacted her way of working and development of artistic practice. Please be sure to follow Subtext and Discourse Artwood Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Stephanie O'Connor. I was just wondering, when did we meet? We met, I think it must have been in 2016 or 15, yeah. even. And I came waltzing into the gallery, and I think I had some delusional ideas about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, about wanting to do a solo show, but I hadn't, you know, wasn't grounded yet in Berlin, so I was, yeah. you know. Was that when you moved to Ber- that's when you moved to Berlin? I moved to Berlin technically in 2015, but I think I was a little bit unmoored from the city for a while. I was traveling around to some dance festivals and then finally in, I think, the very end of 2015, beginning of 2016, I stayed in Berlin. Okay. And so initially, or originally rather, you're from New Zealand. I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand, yeah. Yeah. And you studied fine art? I did. And you specialize in photography or? Well, funny story, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I went to Elam School of Fine Arts at Auckland University in Tamaki, Makoto, Auckland in New Zealand. And I was sort of led to believe that it was a specialist. So for the first year, it would be interdisciplinary. And then the final three years was specializing in what I assumed to be photography or sculpture, painting, etc. And I arrived at Elam and they had completely changed the structure of the course, I guess, and became four years of interdisciplinary work. Oh, was that a good thing? chagrin. No. No. (laughs) But I think upon reflection, you know, I don't want to be too cynical. It did help me become a better artist in the capacity of narrative formation, conceptualizing, engaging with different artworks that's not solely photography. I think it is essentially a positive thing, but I did miss out on the technical side of photography, which I was craving because in that respect, I'm not a huge autodidact Mm. and I had to become one because I just didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was more of a university than a technical college or anything? For sure. It was not a technical college. It was very, it was coupled with doing arts papers, doing, we had sort of critical studies and all this kind of stuff, which is, you know. That's a good foundation though. Fantastic. So now, exactly, now that I'm a bit older and aging millennial, I can look back with a bit more positive sheen over it and I can appreciate what I learned there. Yeah. And how long after graduating did you come to Berlin? Oh my gosh. I mean, I graduated in 2007. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm I'm older now. (laughs) So I graduated in 2007 and I moved to Berlin in 2015. Oh, so what brought you to Berlin then? Well... Or it was a bit of a later decision, rather. Yeah, I mean, it was for me later. as well. I was, yeah, yeah, 20, yeah. I was 27 when I moved overseas. Right, okay. So it was very impromptu, I guess. It wasn't a grand plan to uproot my life and live somewhere else. It was just this whole working holiday thing that was you're eligible for before you turn 31. I was 30, going to turn 31, and I was like, 
okay. It's now or never. Now or never. (laughs) And, you know, just using that privilege essentially that we have with whatever, with Germany and with other countries, it was basically deciding between Toronto and Canada and Berlin. And Toronto, although I'm sure it has plenty to be excited about, it didn't seem too culturally dissimilar to New Zealand. So it didn't entice me as much as somewhere like Berlin and the richness of Berlin's history. And I trusted people that had been there that loved it for the reasons that I might find it interesting, safer Mm -hmm. than New Zealand. I don't know. It was just, it was enticing and it definitely lived up to the expectation that I had for it. And so you work as a retoucher. I work as a retoucher, but I feel like the word is, is a little bit, it doesn't do it justice. Which is what I wanted you know? to ask you about. What does a retoucher do? Because we, yeah. I suppose since digital photography, mm. retouching has always existed, but yes. I suppose maybe the, I guess the general public's perception of it yeah. probably doesn't necessarily align with Not at what, all. from I a mean, professional's point e- of view. Exactly. But I think it's a huge sort of macro term. And then there are things that are quite menial, sounds patronizing, but more menial work, like taking a crease out of a photo or something like this. I'm not doing retouching in that capacity, and I'm also not doing physical retouching onto artworks and stuff like this. I work at a company called Recon Berlin, and it's a CGI and 2D department. And, you know, it's like hardcore compositing and grading and, you know, it's tricky stuff. You know, so we have, you know, huge clients. We also work a lot with artists. But yeah, so it's a cool job and I've been doing it for a while now. Did you imagine you would be doing that after studying art and photography? I was obsessed with post-production. Oh, you were? I was. I was always obsessed with Photoshop from probably before photography, this idea of tinkering and sort of this notion of building things, sort of visual problem solving, creating alternate worlds and all this kind of stuff. And I used to make cheesy, terrible things in Photoshop when I was a kid, basically. But yeah, I digress a little bit. Mm, That's okay. (laughs) So from on the topic of the retouching and things like that, I guess, how do you feel with all the AI stuff and how people are reacting to it and saying it's taking away jobs from photographers and AI is like, destroying photography or its image generation or something Mm. like i suppose that style of production or post-production has existed for a long time to a certain extent yes but it is the yes and right it is both sort of a tragedy (laughs) and also it can be harnessed to for example in my job help Mm. my job a lot i've been recently using the photoshop beta ai function and you can't use it yet for commercial use but just trying things out and it is wild Oh, okay. You know, for example, it's really helpful with something like image extension. You just draw a marquee loosely around the part that you want to extend. You don't even need to use a prompt. You just press generate and it generates the rest of the image. Wow. In a beautiful, like depth of field, everything. (laughs) Like it's pretty crazy. So it's just the tip of the iceberg. But yeah, like I said, it's the yes and, you know, it's not just this binaristic thing of like it's good or it's evil. No, it's both. And it is, I think, the real negative part is for people that are doing slightly less involved work that will just be eradicated. I feel like that with a lot of the AI in yeah, general, exactly. if you're doing copy paste. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. This is, and I know that's sort of a platitude, but it's the truth. And I think about the jobs that are lost that are offshore, that people mm-hmm. are sending 
people to do things like masking, path creation, and stuff like this that will become automated just like that, you know. And it makes my job easier, but, you know, I'm in that privileged position of having, being a part of a studio that is kind of not bespoke, but it's high end or something. But, you know, eventually I will definitely lose my job. hundred <laughs> percent. I'll become a carpenter or something, something tactile. And, yeah. Yeah. That you can't automate. I'll be bad at it. <laughs> exactly. So I was looking through a lot of your back catalogue of work because- mm. I suppose I've, I've followed your work for years. We've known each other for years, so I, <laughs> I, have a, I have a feeling for it. But when I was looking more closely in preparation for this, I guess the retouching is playing a more dominant role in your creative process. Very and I think much. it was one series in particular, How Much Better If You Slept Forever. And I think for me, looking back, that seemed to be like the turning point where things changed for you. I think so. I think that's definitely true. And that series was something that I, I worked through in the height of the pandemic, and I don't like to sort of associate it with the pandemic, but it was what I was doing because there was one window when you could travel. So we traveled for five days, praying not to catch COVID in 2020, you know, and then and maybe that was a little bit irresponsible actually, but it was like following all the rigorous sort of rules and, and all this kind of stuff. And I just bleated out thousands of photographs to be able to then edit later and piece together in a puzzle sort of thing. And it was just of rock formations and the ocean or the sea rather. And I used skies from Berlin. So it was the sort of Frankenstein of <laughs> mixing these two different places, but it was about availability. Time, was this the first time you'd used the composite images in your creative work? Yes. So exactly. So before that it was um, mainly, I mean, it wasn't heavy compositing. Sometimes I would, it was more about heavy grading mm-hmm. and. So, okay, these different terms, compositing, exactly. grading. Yeah. It was more about color work in the past because I love to work in post and I, I like that sort of version of truth that it mm-hmm. creates. And I think it can look really bad and it can also look really, really nice, you know, and enhance what is already there. But yes, the series was very much about kind of myth creation and. The availability of resources of what I had. It's like I couldn't just keep going out and taking new photos. So I had this sort of like morgue of images that I would obsessively for the next year just create these, I don't know, I guess mythic type landscapes. Because they look like real photographs Thank of you. landscapes. Like if you <laughs> well, didn't you know, know <laughs> if you didn't know that they were crafted yeah, or yeah. put together. Well, that's nice. I didn't want it to look like collage. I wanted it to look seamless. You know, I've been a retoucher for so long that It's something that brings me a lot of, it's very therapeutic to just work at the computer and making these things, you know. And I was also reading a lot at the time, um, short fiction, Lydia Mm -hmm. Davis, which there's always this, and Tracy Tracy Slaughter from New Zealand, this sense of menace and there's kind of a, I don't know, this unnerving unsettledness. And I feel like the images to me are slightly unsettled. They're very like jagged and sharp and mm-hmm. and I liked this the motifs of like the both authors use like teeth and crowns and hunched bodies or, or stuff like this. So this was kind of in my mind as well because a lot of the stuff that inspires me is short fiction and poetry. That was something that was going through my mind because, you know, in the pandemic I was just reading a lot. I was working full time, thank goodness. <laughs> I was very lucky. But we still have a lot of time, right? So I was reading and reading a lot. Yeah, it's interesting how you've drawn from that, but then 
you're creating visual things that look like photographs. Yeah. yeah. Would you still consider them to be photos? Well, that's a very good question. And I feel like it's a part of this imposter syndrome that I always felt like an imposter calling myself a photographer because I would amass this imagery and then create something from that which felt illustrative yeah. or visual art. But it's like, no, actually, upon reflection, the intention is to get the focal length through the lens, right? It's like that's the focal length that it's going to stay. I'm not going to make things bigger or smaller. It should be believable yeah. in terms of depth perception and stuff like this. So it's, I do think that it is photography. It's just not documentary. Oh, that's a good way of putting you know? it. Yeah. And, I'm, I'm, and I love that sort of the elusiveness that comes with it. It's not a reality, but it's a part of your memory or identity. And I mm -hmm. think that's really nice. Or what you've been exposed to, like I was reading a lot, right? The words that you're exposed to and it's these, yeah, these small creations, which I really like. Yeah. Yeah. So the series that you did since then or after that rather, so the Rose House and then A Thumping in the Distance, mm. the new way of working mm, that you, yeah. I guess, acquired during the COVID years, now that's a part of your practice. Definitely. Yeah, 100%. It's become a fundament of the way I work. And perhaps back then with the series, How Much Better If You Slept Forever, that is hardcore compositing. I've moved a little bit away from that now that it's just maybe more directly through the lens. But like you said, the few series after that, the Rose House and the Thumping in the Distance, there is always a tiny bit of compositing. But it's okay. not like 20 photographs. <laughs> it's maybe two you know, but there's still this idea of myth creation, you know, for example, the thumping in the distance, it looks like it's nighttime, but everything is shot in the middle of the day. But mm -hmm. I just render the camera settings to make it look like moonlight rather than sunlight. Oh, okay. Just using the camera in ways you shouldn't or technically. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> when I was reading through a lot of your texts as well, you do talk a lot about memory with yes. your works. And I think when I was looking at them, I thought, the way that you treat the color in them, mm. I don't like when you say, oh, they have a dreamlike quality, but they look like what you imagine a dream to look like in the same way that when you look at a black and white photograph, yeah. it looks like the past or it yeah. looks like a memory. Oh, I like that though. I know what you mean about saying dreamlike, but you know, if the shoe fits. You yeah. Know. <laughs> but I, yeah, this idea of memory has really anchored my work, especially since leaving New Zealand. You mm. know, it has become about your identity and the way you remember your life. And I think there's a quote from Eto Adnan, the poet and painter who died recently in 2021. And she says, memory is your identity and what you remember of your life. You know, and this was it resonated a lot with me. And her partner, who Simone Fatal, who was a sculptor, who was still alive, they have this beautiful conversation together. Well, it's conversation with also with an interviewer but it's about them and also to each other. And they have this beautiful relationship, right? But Simone talks about this idea of, I actually have it here. It's a really beautiful, beautiful quote. She says, memory is something that surprises you. It's your identity. It's yourself. But it only comes through sometimes and you never know when it will come. It's like an eruption, you know. And this sort of motif of an eruption is just so quite emotional and mm -hmm. it's like very visceral and, and it really resonated with me that particularly that conversation between them was something that's so fertile and so beautiful and they talk about their art practice and how they view the world they have shared trauma you know it's it's just really interesting yeah this idea of memory it's just it 
pervades all my work now without even realizing, you know, it's just there because I live away now for seven years and it is my own doing and I have a lot of processing to do (laughs) and it's often melancholic, but it's also hopeful Mm -hmm. and it definitely permeates everything I make. Well, that's probably a good segue into your book because you made the work after, if I remember correctly, going to New Zealand for the first time in five years. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. I really wasn't prepared for the intensity. Because I assume this was post-COVID. This was post – oh, God, when was it? I have time dilation. It was, yeah, 2022. And, yes, yeah, so they had literally just opened the borders. And so, thank goodness, you know, it was it was such a – a relief to be able to go home. I still went through quarantine. I had to stay in a hotel. Thank goodness my work paid for it because yeah. it was just a luxury of the wealthy to be able to even go home. But upon arrival, it was just, I was just overwhelmed completely. And it was mainly about relationships, you know. I Not only is memory like driving most of my work, but it's also the idea of relationships and community and how it was then and how it is now and how I view community, how I nurture relationships with a more kind of sentient awareness because I have to be so acutely aware of it, you know, because we live in Berlin and it's so transient. But when I, yeah, when I went back and I have a very good relationship with my nuclear family and my, well, I would call them my, my family as well, but my friends, you know, my close friends, but it was just intense. I felt the dynamics there's the solidified dynamics between people that you're not a part of anymore, mm. including your family. They have in-jokes. They have history. They, they have history, shared cultural history. They have all the stuff that has traversed the five years that you've also had somewhere else, but they're not stepping into that. So I was very, I was very emotional. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. And I didn't know how to process it. And also stepping into old family dynamics like I said, and it was just a lot, and things looked different. The landscape had changed. Old places I used to go to were busted down. The community oh, spaces really? were gone. You know, it's just, it was a bit depressing, mm. and it was also COVID, so the streets were empty. So they had this real hollowed sense of detachment, and I just felt pretty awful. <laughs> but I was there for seven weeks. It got better. It was, it was just very, it was a lot. Yeah. yeah. And so the book was like a memento or a document of that period. Yeah. And you know this, like I said before about the composite images, they're photography but they're not documentary. But to me, this the book, the images feel it is a documentation of sorts, but it can't be said to be documentary photography in its essentialist nature or anything. But it's sort of like following trails old trails of where I used to be, where I used to go and how they just feel and look different. And they're still very special and integral to who you are in your identity, but it just, you drop back in and it's odd. Yeah. And it's not expecting to people, for people to change their ways to make you feel better, but you just have to learn how to deal with it. Maybe go to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know you wanted to make a book? No. You didn't? No. Not at all. But I took my camera with me everywhere in New Zealand. And I liked, there's this, and I had been thinking about it a lot. 
in the previous two series, but there's this Canadian artist, Moira Davy, and she talks about she's a photographer but also a writer and on many artistic practices. And she has this text called On Photography, and she talks about this type of photographing which involves like purposeful drift. So you're just going out there relying a little bit on contingency, but there is a purpose, right? And she also talks about this idea of like the enterprise of it, of collecting and absorbing. So you are just going out and you're collecting. This is how I interpret it. I might mm-hmm. be, you know, you have your own lens when you read things. And But I had this idea in my mind that I would just be collecting and collecting without an idea of what I'm necessarily creating. But I'm just collecting these these images from my life that I used to have. And, and the idea comes later when I obsessively grade and, and work through the hundreds and thousands of images, you know. So how is it putting the book together then? Because if I understand right, you were probably more subconsciously documenting the experience yes. and I guess editing and selecting and yeah, well, would have been later when you got back to Berlin. Much later, yes, like 10 months later or something. I actually have wanted to make a book for a while, but it had to feel right, you know. Mm. It's not this idea of just... I want to make a photo book for the coffee table. You know, it's like it has to have an intention and mm-hmm. and a reason. And it was in the back of my mind. And then on Instagram, I saw that there was a photo book making workshop at Build Band Berlin mm-hmm. photo bookstore with the Polish artist Tomasz Laksny. I'm going to butcher his last name. I'm sorry, Tomasz. And so I paid for it and I went and it was great and he was wonderful. And then that really started to put it into motion. And so, yeah, I worked with him a lot on the sequencing and editing. That's when it really started to get some propulsion, I guess. Yeah, because you collaborated with a lot of people. Like yes. You had a book designer and you had a writer. It's not just your first, I'm going to do a photo book and then I'll, I'll do it all myself and see no, what happens. Like you really that didn't appeal to me <laughs> at all. You know, it's a reflection of who you are a little bit. I was like... I'd, Photography can feel so solitary, mm. you know, and I, I don't – sometimes it's wonderful. I could work for weeks on end just at the computer going up, taking photographs, and it brings me a lot of joy. But it was a bit melancholy to think about doing this alone. And, you know, like I said, it's about this rethinking how you think about work, how you think about your relationships. And I wanted it to be a communal effort, and I wanted to feel – togetherness Mm -hmm. you know and it made such a big difference and also like I'm good at what I do and I don't necessarily have to be a fantastic bookbinder or you know we did the practicing and it was wonderful it's very therapeutic but I'm like I am not bookbinding 80 books no (laughs) (laughs) no way mate like not at all (laughs) but how did you find all the different people like how did you even start well it was with this Tomash workshop and then his partner she's an amazing photographer Oh my gosh, her name on Instagram is The Final View. She was there as well. So he was editing, there was about 10 people there. He mm-hmm. was editing the everybody's work. And then I was talking to her. Her name is Sayuri Ichida. That's right, a Japanese artist. And she had worked with a bookbinder that had bound her current work. And it was so beautifully done, so elegant and I got the contact and talked to her on Instagram, Mm -hmm. Tina de Salta in Belgium. And, you know, it's always nice to have a conversation first because 
you don't want to work with just anybody. Like, what if they have terrible views on the world? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like we have a chat first and we, we get to know each other and then you see if you align. Mm-hmm. So that was really nice and she's she's great. And we went from there. And she knows a lot and that's what I needed. I needed somebody to to really help me and, and otherwise I would be floundering for years, you know. Yeah. Take, so, and I didn't want that, no. So what was the timeline then from – it was quick. It was quite a few months of sequencing with Tomash. So outside of the book making workshop, we were doing online sessions and he has such a wonderful sensitivity and he's just a great person. And then when I started talking to Tina, it became a bit more of a passion project. So I got it for a better price, thankfully, mm-hmm. but then that was less time. So maybe two months. Yeah. Wow. That's really fast to turn it around. It was fast and it was like every day obsessing over details, which I think you should do, you know. Yeah. Test prints, thank goodness. Oh my gosh. Can't imagine, you know, not doing that. And just me being neurotic and asking a million questions, both to Tomash and to Tina. It was a lot of, it was a lot of work, but it was, it was very satisfying as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you published your first book now. Self-published. It's nice though. It's nice to have something tangible that you make and you feel proud of. I can't look at it at the moment. No. I need to have some time, <laughs> you know. Were there any unexpected things like throughout the process? You thought, oh, I didn't think I'd have to do this. Uh, I mean, when I got the test print, I was like, holy shit. As a retoucher, I should have seen this. I should have seen this. Okay. There was, because the, the paper's beautiful, but it it's, has this quality of just showing up everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, oh, man. There's this white splodge there and there's this and just just looking at it under a loop and just being yeah. like, oh, and I would just completely for like two days straight just fixed everything, yeah. you know, and also the way that the blacks react mm-hmm. with blue next to it. So they didn't sort of blend beautifully like they do in, on the screen. It would see like a hard edge and it's like, oh. if that had been printed, it would I couldn't show anyone. Yeah. The integrity would just be in the toilet, you know. <laughs> I'm like, no, no. So I was so thankful, of course, to get test prints. And that was the first thing that Tomash said. He's like, you, you have to do test prints. It's like, yeah, of course. It makes sense. So, <laughs> so okay. that sounds like a very good, important lesson to yes. learn. But if other photographers that are listening are thinking, oh, it's going to take me forever to do a book. And then you say, I did, I did my book in two months. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, two months is an overstatement. I did it over a year, year and two months. Yeah. But with all the f- image formulation and, and conceptually sort of engaging with it, it was more that Tina was like, I have the book binder and designer. I have from here to here. And these are the slots I have. And it's like, okay, shit. And then just working rigorously in those two months to get it done. So I guess having a timeline and a plan is really, really important. Definitely, yeah, for, exactly. I think having a timeline, having a plan, having support. And I know these things can be expensive, you know, and I, I would have done it alone and maybe done a few copies if I had to, mm-hmm. you know, but I was so determined not to. <laughs> yeah, I would have asked around more if it didn't work with Tina. Yeah. But, you know, I was also incredibly lucky, and this is another reason it brings back to community, is that I did a fundraiser for the book, which paid for the book. And it was I was so moved by the fact that that happened. I never expected it, but it showed, you know, that wonderful people can be. Yeah. And if it's just a little bit here and there, it's not much for the person donating. But if it's the collective, it's just it was so lovely and I mean, there was also incentive. I gave prints and, yeah. you know, 
like good quality prints and stuff. But you know, it was just very touching, and so it made my life much less stressful yeah. because I cannot afford to just fork out, you know, four grand for this and got to pay rent, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the book's finished now. You have yes. a physical copy. But you, I guess now the next chapter of it starts really yes. where you have to promote it and exhibit it. So what exactly. is the... So for the past few months, I guess, since it's been officially self-published, I've been quite, what's the word, applied or I guess in how I, because I'm a real rookie, you know, yeah. and I have no shame in asking questions and, and revealing that it's like a, a new thing for me. I think that's a really important skill to have is yeah. to not be afraid to ask questions oh man the humility <laughs> if that's something that we can learn that's the best quality i think and not being afraid to just in a polite way of course approach people say hey i've got my self-published book would you like to review it i'll send mm. it to you so i've been doing that which has been really nice sending it to reviewers approaching bookstores photo bookstores which has been successful and also not entirely successful. Some people in New Zealand haven't even responded to me. And, you know, that's fine. It's it's fine. People have busy lives and, it, you know, sometimes I don't know where it fits. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily thinking that I'm unique. No, it's not that. But it's a – I don't know where it fits. It's not super hyper hip. It's not gritty black and white. You know, it's not magnum. So I'm still finding the place. You know, it's fine to, for it to exist in its own whatever – if people enjoy it, that's nice. But I have had some luck, of course, with some places in New Zealand and collections and people have been generally really lovely oh, and good. open. But I think it's this idea of approaching people in the right way, right mm -hmm. way, whatever that means, but just, you know, with a bit of humility and also a bit of directness and a bit of self-possession, you know. It's like, well, I made this and I'm proud of it and blah, blah, blah. What are they going to do? Just say no and that's fine. Yeah. Whatever. Ah, but the other person I collaborated with was my very good friend Francis who's a poet they're a writer and a poet and just a very adept person mm -hmm. <laughs> creatively and a musician yeah and it was it was very late in the process that I thought to have poetry included because I love poetry and it drives a lot of my inspiration with Etel Adnan, who I mentioned, um, mm -hmm. Ariana Reyes. Yeah, well, I think when you were talking about how your process has changed and how important poetry and writing is anyway, it's not surprising. Yeah. But, yeah, interesting that it, yeah. it wasn't at the forefront when you no, thought, okay, I'm doing my book. Not at all. But Francis and me have a very text-based relationship because they're in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. We're always writing to each other, so it felt naturalistic in a way. And they're such a beautiful writer and a hyper-creative person and – We've been friends for, for years and years and years. And I approached them about maybe writing some poetic prose for the book. And I asked them to choose images that resonated with them. And, you know, we have a shared history of being in New Zealand. And, yeah, so they did. And when they, they sent it to me, I was just, like, completely floored because it was so beautiful <laughs> and so visceral and so – there's a real hauntedness to their writing, you know, and I, I do feel that I think it's easy to look at the book and think it's pretty and stuff, but I'm like, I see it as quite charged and quite melancholic, actually. Mm -hmm. A bit hopeful, but I, I do find it, I think the, the hyper-drenched colors maybe persuade you into thinking it's like light and stuff, but mm -hmm. I don't feel it's light at all. That's something that I really like about Francis's work. And 
their own work kind of explores ideas of post-colonial hauntology and <laughs> archival remediation and all this kind of stuff, which is so interesting. And it also brings this trust that they have a similar view of the world mm -hmm. as you and they have a similar experience. And there's this humility and criticality that they have that I think is important because, you know, even though the book is not directly about post-colonial New Zealand, we are photographing in New Zealand and it is the land on which you stand and you have to understand your positionality to that. So the fact that they study and research this kind of stuff, it, it brings me, I don't know what the word is, it's just a shared interest and a shared political kind of understanding mm -hmm. or hopefully sensitivity and just the their writing is yeah it's it can be quite haunting i think <laughs> yeah did they come up with the title or did you i did you did well i got it from a poem from leonie adams a very beautiful poem about the summer because it was shot all in summer it's a really lovely book and i think well, I suppose until talking to you, I didn't know kind of the weight behind all yeah. of this stuff. I had a feeling because I knew okay. you'd been to New Zealand for the first time in a long time and I've had a similar experience yes, going to Australia have. after being also locked out outside of the country. So your your expectations about how things are going to be when you get back and also having lived away for so long, that obviously plays a part in how you see things. But if you if you don't necessarily have that, background experience you're not going to project that onto the images yeah exactly and that's okay you know it's you can only project what you know onto something right but it is sometimes nice to have a bit of an insight so that's why i had a slight a small introductory text in the beginning which i think maybe cushions it a little bit it's also yeah. not completely doom and gloom you know <laughs> it's it's just not a bunch of pretty pictures which i think sometimes people are oh great it's yeah, and I'm like, well, <laughs> that's okay, but yeah. Yeah, it's really lovely. Obviously, congrats on publishing your first book. Thanks. Are you already thinking about your next book? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very impatient, and I like to feel like I'm making new work and not rest on my laurels, you mm -hmm. know. So I'm definitely – I'm making new work at the moment that I started about two months ago that I am really enjoying. So is that Under the Weight of Flowers? Under the Weight of Flowers, Yes. And are you still carrying on the composite and no. the other things? Yeah, because no. I thought they are quite different. I think um, That's aesthetically, good. I'm glad. <laughs> aesthetically it does seem to be a departure, yeah. a good. change, good. something different. I'm super glad that you said that because <laughs> it's nice to feel like you're evolving. No, no, these are one shot. I got a macro lens that I'm obsessed with and they're just very hopefully more intimate, warm images of flowers, nature, and of my found family, I guess, in Berlin, and close-up of eyes and all this kind of stuff. But it's very dear to me, I think. Yeah, it's sort of this emergent spring feeling for me anyway, and I know that it was started to be photographed at the beginning of spring, and I've been reading Etel Adnan's uh, The Spring Flowers' own poetry book, which is just the most beautiful thing in the world and it's so inspiring and it has this sort of super beautiful aesthetics sort of around almost, almost like mortuary but then like rebirth and like flowers this motif of flowers is so strong obviously throughout the whole book this made me think about 
you know, this thing that her partner Simone Fatal said about memory, you never know when it will come up and it's like an eruption. And I started to think about my relationships in Berlin and how important they are. And then my relationships back home, equally important, but I can't nurture them in the same way. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about, you know, these memories I started to have about growing up with gardens and I don't have that in Berlin, right? It's a bit of a concrete jungle. We have parks and stuff, which is wonderful. But gardens was such a constant throughout my life. And my mum, you know, had green thumbs and she loves flowers. And and it was just this thing that was sort of missing in my day-to-day life in Berlin. And I started to really think about it a lot. And I, I guess the intention with the work is this curation of a garden. And it might sound a little bit cheesy, but it's this you know, gardens are essentially curations, you know, and it's finding parts of bodies, you know, of friends, eyes, hands, mouths that become flowers, their eyes are flowers, flowers mm-hmm. are eyes, like bubbles in the water, swans, and just, yeah, this creation of a garden out of various parts of things for a sense of comfort. I resonate with the nature thing because I, yeah. I don't know if it's for the same for everybody in Australia, mm-hmm. but other people I've spoke to have had similar responses that you don't realize how much nature is just a part of your life yes and then yeah moving to somewhere that is such a metropolis like berlin you're like wow i took it for I granted need, <laughs> i need to be around green things and trees definitely and i think we noticed that whenever we went on holiday anywhere we were always going to the countryside yeah exactly. even like in spain or in croatia or wherever we went to we were always in nature yeah exactly. it's like oh it's like this weird internal drive Totally, yeah. Back out in nature. Definitely. It really is a part of your identity, you know. And I think for me more so the ocean, and I I can't photograph the ocean in Berlin, let alone the sea. I'm not going to go and photograph Mugglesee, you know. (laughs) But it is this this kind of search for things. Like I I walked around the whole of Tiergarten and I couldn't find a single flower. Really? And I was like, I mean, it's huge, right? It's big, yeah. I I walked for about an hour. (laughs) But And I was like, man, because I had seen, I don't know, a week before a friend of mine had photographed there and there was flowers. And I was like, I'm going to go there because I'm trying to find flowers, but it, it's actually quite difficult. I mean, you see the same little white ones everywhere, but it's, yeah, it's a bit barren. So it is in kind of the search for things, which is quite fun. <laughs> but also just memorializing my friends as mm-hmm. they are now because they may move back to wherever, you yeah. know, and they're all from completely different places. And it's this sort of fear of that, you know, I guess just like the spring, they're emergent and then they will be fragile and die away. And then that's just this feeling. But also I feel like it's a bit of a warmer series, a bit more hopeful somehow. Yeah. Not that the other one's that depressing, I hope. <laughs> I don't think it is. I don't think maybe so. Maybe this is more It's just more charged, that's all. Maybe the newer work's more coming to terms with how to Yeah. I think process so. it. I think so. And it's nice that you said that they look different because it's it's always good to know that you're moving forward yeah. a little bit, right? Well, really good to learn more about your work, what you're doing. Thanks. Again, congratulations on your book. And thanks for yeah, having me. I look forward to seeing where it goes from here. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Stephanie O'Connor. It was nice catching up and gaining a more in-depth understanding of her process, in particular the context behind her debut photo book, All Stars Stand Close in Summer Air. In the show notes, you can find links to Steph's website and her Instagram page. 
Since recording our interview, Steph was announced as one of the Lens Culture 2023 Emerging Talent Award winners, so I've included a link to that as well. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback to this or past episodes of the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch. In recent editions of the show, the subject of photo festivals and how beneficial they can be has been spoken about, so I've been putting together a list of international photography festivals, art fairs, and book publishing events, which you can access on my website, www.michaeldooney.net. There is a link on the top right-hand corner of the homepage where you can access the database. Subtext and Discourse Art World Podcast is streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on every major podcast platform. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone else who would appreciate it, why not send them a link to the show? That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in. My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.